This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everyone. Welcome into another Pipeline podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo of MLBPipeline.com. Plenty to talk about this week. The winter meetings get going on Monday in Orlando. We'll get you ready for that. The former Braves international prospects who were granted free agency are starting to find new homes. So we'll update that situation as well. But we have to start by diving into the new fresh off the presses top 50 draft prospects which you guys have worked so hard to put together over the last few weeks and it is on mlbpipeline.com right now uh jonathan you wrote the overall piece kind of introducing this new top 50 so i'll start with you it's a strong class right i think that's the place to start is that when you look at draft classes this is a good one yeah no it it is it is a good one uh most people feel that it is uh, as strong uh, of a class, if not stronger than anyone since 2011. Now, 2011 was kind of insane. Uh, you know, so to even put it in the same conversation uh, shows you what uh, what evaluators think uh, of the class, at least as of right now. Uh, you know, then we'll have to see what happens in the spring in terms of guys separating themselves. But, uh, you know, in, in talking to some people about the class in general, uh, what really stood out is that there's a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, you've got college pitching right at the top. There's a lot of really good high school pitching, a couple of tiers of it, um, some high school bats. And then I think what, to me anyway, that makes it uh, more impressive or, or deeper anyway, is that there are actually some college bats that are, that are good. Uh, it feels like most often, especially at this point in time, it's really light on college bats. And we've talked about this before. The industry has done a good job of signing position players out of high school. uh, So there aren't as many good college players. And while we don't have a a college player in the top 10 right now, we have five of them in the 11 to 20 range. And I could see a whole bunch of them moving into the top 10 in the spring. You know, if they, if they perform as, as hoped. Uh, So to me, that's the kind of the, the added thing that sets this class apart, at least compared to, uh, the last few. Jim, uh, obviously things can change, and they always do change. Uh, how much do you expect the real cream of the crop in this class where you guys have it right now? Do you feel like these top guys that we're going to get into a little more specifically, do you feel like they have staying power to stay where they are? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the changes are somewhat random. I, I don't know if we can project one year to the next, you know, like, oh, you know, these guys are going to stay here. I mean, I'm looking at last year's list, and coming into the year, we had Hunter Green number one, and he stayed there. Jaron Kendall was number two, and, and he slid a little bit because of questions about his bat. Royce Lewis was number three, and he went number one overall. Alex Fido was four, and he slid because of questions about his philosophy for part of the summer, and Kyle Wright was number five, and that's exactly where he went. So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of guys staying at the top of the list from December to June, a lot of that has to do with, you know, how healthy they are. We've got three pitchers at the top of this list, and I would think that 
providing they all stay healthy. I mean, Brady Singer combined stuff and polish. I mean, I would I would expect him to go out and and have a great year with the Florida Gators again after winning a national championship. You know, Ethan Hankins. You know, if he continues to make progress with his breaking ball, that's the only real question with him. And you know, the third guy on the list, you know, Matt Liebertor, a high school pitcher from Arizona, is extremely polished. So I don't know what would go wrong with him. You know, maybe the the position players might change a little bit depending on who comes out and, and hits or doesn't hit in the spring. But I, you know, I think it's a pretty stable group. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned how strong it is as a group, but what's the strongest position in this class right now? Uh, you could make a, a series of arguments. I mean, there's a lot of pitching up top. I, I mean, I think the high school pitching. I mean, although, but there's a lot of good college arms too. Uh, but I'll, I'll say, you know, I always like looking at the high school arms. Now, that's the one group that can be volatile, and guys who we have at the top could not perform. You know, Jim mentioned Ethan Hankins. If you know, let's say his breaking ball doesn't continue to come, uh, you know, I could see him maybe not being a top, you know two or three guy, uh, but by this, you know, I don't think he'd fall that far, but uh, by the same token, there are some guys sort of in that second tier uh, who uh, are a little bit further down, Cole Wilcox, Mason Denneberg, uh, Carter Stewart. Uh, these are all sort of projectable high school arms, all of whom who could, uh, you know, make a serious move, uh, you know, up to the upper echelons and be you know among the the top high school guys, but there's there's a a, a nice hefty robust group of high school pitchers you know uh, all throughout this top 50 and and that's the group like I said that you know they could take a huge step forward or they could uh, not perform as well in the spring and then you know the, they'll fall into the sort of comp second round uh, or or off to college you know area. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see on them, but there's a lot of them to keep an eye on. It's a nice mix between high school and college players as well in the top 50. 26 high school players, 24 college in the top 10, five of each. So really balanced there. All right, let's get into the the top of the list a little bit more. Uh, Brady Singer, Jim, is another pitcher out of the University of Florida. Another Gator obviously helped them to the, the title. Um, we've seen this before with Florida Gator pitchers. Um, in the past, though, they've faded a little bit. What separates Singer from Puck and the other guys that we've seen in recent years? What makes him better? Yeah, I mean, the last two years coming into the year, I believe, without going back and looking at it, we had A.J. Puck as the top college pitcher two years ago, and we had Alex Fido as the top college pitcher last year. And both of them were, were, were strong candidates to go number one overall. I mean, I, I would say, uh, Jonathan, wouldn't you say, like, if, if everything's equal, it seems like teams are probably going to lean college pitcher with the first pick because everybody needs pitching and you want a guy who can help quick. And if there's that guy, you, you, I think those guys do go number one, you know, more often than not, if everything's equal. Um, but I do think Singer has a better bet, uh, is a better bet than Puck or Fieto to, to stay there and go number one. Um, Puck, I mean, we, we talked about this, you know, at length in 2015. For as good as his stuff can be when he's on, he was very inconsistent. And you could see sometimes when he would have as good a slider as anybody in baseball and, and command the fastball, and then other times where he couldn't locate the fastball very well and the slider wasn't nearly as sharp. Um, and Singer has been much more consistent than A.J. Puck was in his first two years or for, for all three years of Florida. You know, Singer was very smooth and polished, I mean, even from day one. I mean, after his freshman year, he went out and he was the best prospect in the Cape Cod League. And then with Fajardo last year, I mean, I, I just think it was kind of a, 
if you, there's such a thing as an imperfect storm, you know, Fido wound up having arthroscopic surgery on both his knees in the off-season, so his off-season program wasn't what it was, and I just don't think his arm strength was where it was usually going into last year. And, you know, you talk to scouts who saw him in the first half of the season, and they thought his velocity was down. Um, and it's funny, I remember talking to, I, I, I just so happened to be the, at my alma mater, University of Georgia, on a weekend where they were playing Florida, and I went to see him pitch. And I remember talking to Kevin O'Sullivan, their coach, and, and he thought it was overblown. He didn't think there was anything wrong with Fido. And then down the stretch, Fido got his velocity back. He's, he's, he's got a wipeout slider, too, that's probably better than Pucks. And he was the best pitcher at the College World Series, and the MVP of Florida won the national title. But, you know, I think Singer is in a better place physically than Fido was a year ago. Um, I think he overall has better control. And I do think the thing that also separates him uh, from Fido and Puck to some extent is, while, while Singer's got a really good slider, and it's not, it's not a wipeout slider per se like Puck's, and Fiedos, where you throw it and the guy's no chance, but he has great feel for the slider in terms of changing its shape and its velocity so it winds up looking like different pitches and really throws you off. I don't think he's as reliant on his slider as the other two guys were. The game I saw Fido pitch, he might have thrown 40-something sliders if he threw 100 pitches, and I think you know Singer, while he relies on the slider, doesn't rely on it as heavily, and, and thus is more apt to keep his fastball command and fastball velocity through the season. So I, I think, you know, I, I guess people have heard us say this before, but yes, the University of Florida once again has the best pitcher in college baseball in terms of the draft, and this guy might have the better chance uh, of all three of those guys to go number one overall. I think the the scouting director they talked to for that that main story kind of sums it up. There's less that can go wrong with him. You know, those guys were more, uh, maybe slightly more, you know, throwers or power guys. Uh, and Singer is a more complete pitcher. So on an any given day, even if he doesn't have his best stuff, he's such a good pitcher that he's going to be able to, to offset that. Um, you know, while the other two had certain things that could and, and at times did go wrong. All right, so Singer, number one, top college pitcher. Ethan Hankins, number two, another right-hander, the top high school pitcher. Uh, We've seen flamethrowers coming out of the high school ranks the last couple of years. Uh, Jonathan, how does Hankins stack up to the Hunter Greens of the world as far as uh, that fastball? Uh, It's it's close. I mean, he's not been registering triple digits uh, yet anyway. Of course, Hunter Green wasn't doing that until uh, the spring kind of started. Uh, for him in, in what's the winter for, for most of us, but he was in, in Southern California. Uh, I think, you know, he measures up or at least, you know, belongs in the, in the same conversation uh, of top high school arms that we've seen, you know, and this is the first time in three years uh, that we didn't have a high school arm number one on this top 50 list. You know, we had Hunter Green there last year and, and Jay Groom two years before that, the lefty from New Jersey. And, there is a lot to a lot to like with with, with Hankins. Uh, it's just it's such easy velocity. Uh, the secondary stuff, as Jim mentioned, is a little bit behind, but it's coming. It was better over the summer uh, than a lot of people anticipated, and better than people had seen against really really good competition. So as long as he keeps going on that same path, he is going to be in that conversation. You know, at, you know, near the top of the draft. Always throw in that caveat that a high school right-hander's never been taken number one overall, but uh, uh, he 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 belongs in that conversation. 
All right, Matt Libertor is number three, the left-handed pitcher. I want to get into some position players, though. The highest-rated one is Nolan Gorman at number four. He's a third baseman from the Phoenix area, high school third baseman. And he's a guy, Jim, that that we've seen it because he's been on the showcase circuit. He's been in big-time games, and he's come through uh, with that power. He was even at the All-Star game last year competing in Miami in the home run derby there. But uh, just talk about the power this guy brings. And is that why he's number four, or is it an overall package for Gorman? Well, it's his power. I mean, he does some other things, but it's it's the power that's his carrying tool. You could argue he might be the best power or best raw power in this draft. I mean, he's not as proven maybe as some of the college performers, but I think most scouts, if they had to bet on a guy who's going to hit the most home runs in the big leagues in this draft, would bet on Gorman. He won, I think it was three home run derbies during the summer, including the the home run derby at the All-Star game that uh, that you guys called. Um, you know, it's, it's probably 70 raw power at least. Um, you know, I think the thing with him, you know, you nitpick these guys at the top a little bit is, I mean, he needs to make, you know, consistent hard contact throughout the spring. I mean, he was not as consistent at times during the summer, but did have a, a pretty good overall summer. Um, you know, he's got the arm for third base. Uh, you know, I think that's where he's going to wind up fitting. Uh, you know, he, he does have some hitting ability, but it, it's going to come down to the power ultimately with him. All right, so Gorman there, number four, the third baseman. Number five is another pitcher, a college lefty, Shane McClanahan, University of South Florida. Six and seven, we have two more high school players, Jonathan, both shortstops. So uh, Nander DeSatis, Bryce Terang, if you can kind of put these guys next to each other, compare them, are they different types of shortstops? Are, are they similar? Um, is that why they're so close in the ratings? I was going to say, we, we did put them next to each other. <laughs> Um, well so next, next question. Now, um, I mean, there are some similarities in that they, they both have multiple tools and the chance to you know, play a premium position long-term. Uh, I think uh, DeSatis has more power, um, and Terang has more speed. Uh, you know, the difference in terms of sort of the just draft stock is that Terang came into the summer as uh, kind of the top guy. And sometimes, you know, guys that are that highly touted before the summer showcase circuit, you know, before their senior years, uh, have no place to go but down. And they're, you know, a little prospect to think. But he also just had kind of an uneven uh, summer uh, with a lot of eyes on him. He did, he did not look like the best guy in the field. Uh, which when you're thought of as a top guy, you kind of have to be at all times. We didn't knock him down too much, but um, he does everything just sort of well. DeSatis might have sort of a little more upside, a, a, an up arrow next to his name right now. Although he, you know, he, he was a little up and down in the summer, but he wasn't a guy who was sort of considered in this area, and he showed off some pretty loud tools, especially with the bat uh, in some, some big events this summer. Jim, when there's two high school guys that play the same position that are that close, is there a good debate for you guys as to who who ends up at number six and who number ends up at number seven, or do you not really care at this point? Oh, no. Come on, Tim. Of course we care. <laughs> uh, and plus, you know me. I mean, Jonathan will back, back me up saying this, but, like, I don't know whether it's a positive or negative trait or both, but, like, I'm kind of obsessive about, like, is number 31 really better than number 32? So, of course we care. But, uh, no, it does make for good debate. And with the Sadis versus Terang, uh, I think we've gone back and forth on that. And I think if uh, in a vacuum we started this process – 
like our, our minds were erased, our memories were erased, and we started this process again in a couple weeks, we might come out with Terang at 6 and DeSatis at 7. I, I mean, as Jonathan said, they're different types of shortstops, but uh, I think you could really make a case for, for either one of them. You know, if you want the higher offensive ceiling, you probably go with DeSatis. If you want the guy who, who has a pretty good offensive ceiling, maybe not the same power but more speed and is a better bet to stay at shortstop, you go with Terang. So I, I think that's one – that probably will continue to be debated back and forth throughout the spring. And yep. that may be one even on draft day where it just is a matter of who you talk to and, and what they want in a shortstop as to which guy they'd send, they, they, they like more. I think that's going to be kind of fun to watch all spring. Jonathan, you mentioned the depth of the college ranks, but obviously no position players in the top ten. Nick Madrigal is the top guy, number 11, Oregon State infielder. And to me, he kind of reminds me of some of the guys we've seen go towards the top of the draft out of the college ranks in that he's undersized. So when you look at him, I think physically, it's kind of clear why he wasn't a top, top guy coming out of high school. But he's proven himself at the college ranks. And, and those guys, it seems like when they get into there, the sophomore, junior year, they can just continue to rise. Yeah, it's an, it's, he's going to be a very interesting test case because I think – in a lot of ways, the scouting industry has moved past the size matters thing. That said, if he were a six foot one infielder, uh, he probably would be at the top of the list uh, or closer to the top of the list. Um, and I, you know, I certainly heard from a few people on Twitter asking why he wasn't in the top ten. And uh, if you look at the mock drafts that, uh, that Jim and I have done, we both have him going in the top ten. So I, I think he'll probably work his way there. But I, I think it's an interesting thing because, one, uh, uh, maybe because of uh, analytics, maybe because of the success of guys like Jose Altuve, uh, you know, major league teams don't worry as much about lack of size. And then you add in his track record of success, especially after his sophomore year where he was uh, you know, arguably the best or most consistent college hitter in baseball. He for average got on base. He, he's got you know, some extra base ability, even though he's not that big. Um, and the one thing holding him back uh, is that he may not be a shortstop. Um, I, you know, most people I talk to think that he could play shortstop if you needed him to, uh, but he's played second for Oregon State in, in deference to Caden Grenier, uh, and he might – be better off at second, but he might be a gold glove second baseman. But by and large, guys who are already second baseman in the amateur ranks, uh, people don't get nearly as excited uh, about as they, as they might uh, if he were playing shortstop every day. And I was just going to chime in. I think, like Jonathan said, I think he almost certainly will go higher than we have him ranked. You know, we, we line these guys based up on the consensus we got on their talent, not where they'll go. But the way the, way the draft works is – most of the time you get drafted by the team that, that likes you as much or, or better than everybody else. And if you're talking about you know teams in the top ten, you know, like Jonathan was talking about with the position, if you think Nick Madrigal can, is, is definitely a shortstop, then you would put him higher. Uh, we would have put him higher on our list, and he would go higher in the draft. And out of those ten teams, there may not be all ten teams that think, oh, yeah, he's definitely a shortstop. But if you have two or three teams that think he's definitely a shortstop, that's going to move him up either. And one bit of feedback we did get, not just on Madrigal, but about the college position players in general, um, Jonathan mentioned this earlier, and he's right. I, I do think it's a very deep group of college position players. We just don't have any in the top ten. But I did have a, an assistant scouting director tell me that, look, you know, college position players always are in demand and go higher. 
um, and that they'll go higher than you have them ranked. So I think, you know, if you told me Nick Madrigal went in the top five picks and that, you know, the athletic guys like Travis Swaggerty or Jeremy Ironman jumped into the top ten too, uh, I think that's very possible. All right, check out the full top 50 list on MLBPipeline.com. There's also a mock draft because it's never too soon. Actually, this isn't even the first mock draft, uh, but there's one of those up there as well, so make sure you check out that. Uh, We're going to move on here to former Braves prospects, international prospects. Obviously, 13 Braves international prospects are free to sign with other teams now because of the penalties uh, placed upon the Braves organization Four of those 13 players have already signed as we record this podcast, including what everyone says is the big one, was the big one when he originally signed and is going to get the biggest bonus here when re-signing as well. That's Kevin Maiton. He goes to the Angels. Uh, He initially got a $4.25 million bonus from the Braves. He gets $2.2 million from the Angels. It's tough on these guys that they get thrown into the you know, thrown out again uh, into the world. But on the other hand, it can be lucrative as well, Jonathan. Gee, that's Kevin... tough. I don't know. Boy, <laughs> right. I feel rough for Kevin Maiton that he just got an extra $2.2 million because he was signed illegally. That's. I, I wish my life was that tough. That's that's where I was heading, was the fact that, yes, they have to uh, get adapt to a new team, a new organization, and all of that, but they will be paid well to do it. And Kevin Maiton... Yeah, Jonathan paid me under the table when I came to MLB, so I I just want to say if somebody wants to come in and, and make that right and give me $2.2 million here before Christmas, uh, yes. I'll help works. it out and switch teams if I have to. Yes. All right. So the Angels get my time. They also get Levon Soto, uh, $850,000. So the Angels, a team with, we've talked about it, not a strong farm system. Here's one way to, to help things out, right, Jonathan? Yeah, it's uh, it is interesting. I mean, and and they're taking advantage of the 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 wrinkle in the rules set up by Major League Baseball with these guys is the ability to uh, use next year's international bonus pool money to sign these guys because they only have 1.3 million, uh, just over 1.3 million in this year's pool. And they're trying um, to get Otani as well. So. Right. Well, and the thing is that they so they signed Maiton and they signed. Uh, Soto, uh, and I've not heard definitively, you know, the, the Soto money, which pool it's going to be, but presumably if they're still in the running for Otani, uh, they're keeping the $1.3 million intact. Uh, they're definitely using next year's pool to sign Maiton. Uh, you can't combine pools. It's one or the other, and, uh, you know, they don't have enough in this year's pool to sign them. So clearly that's next year's uh, pool money. Uh, but it is a, a, an aggressive move by an organization that has had uh, a weaker farm system. It's been getting it's been getting a little better. Uh, you know, I think the last couple of years uh, they've had some you know interesting guys in the in the draft, some high upside high school position players, uh, and and then they've they've gone after some international players uh, a little more quietly. Uh, you know, signing Baldequin hasn't really panned out, but they've gotten uh, some other guys. You know, the, the, even in this year's they uh, went after Trent uh, Devoe from the Bahamas and gave him 1.2 million. So they're, they're moving in the right direction. Uh, and I think that adding Kevin Maiton, who once that be, you know, is official official, he'll be their, their number one prospect. And the first time they've had a top 100 guy in, in quite some time, uh, you know, and, and Soto is a lesser guy, but he'll be in their top 30 for sure. Uh, guys with some upside, 
they may be far away, but uh, you know it's all moving kind of in the right direction. I think they're using uh, the, the system to to their advantage. And I was going to say, Jonathan. I mean, as people know, like Maiton is, is on our top 100 already. He was with the Braves. He will. He we don't change the top 100 order. We set it back in in July. My question to you is. When you do your new Angels list, and I know we haven't gotten to that point yet, do you think Maiton will be the number one prospect in the system? Or do you, where, where do you, where would you stack him up against Joe Adele and, and, and Jemai Jones, who, who are the top two guys uh, on, on the current system before he officially comes in? Um, you know what? That's a, it's a good question. I like both of them. I love Jemai Jones. Um, I still, you know, It'll be interesting to see what, you know, when I, I haven't even begun working on this, on this list yet. So I haven't spoken to anybody internally or externally. Um, I, I know that people have kind of soured on Kevin Maiton uh, a bit, uh, but I still think it's a little too early. So if I were to, if I were to do the list right now, um, I still would probably lean towards having him uh, number one, but I think you could stack up those three uh, in any order and make a, a, a very, good argument for whichever way you lined them up. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I was just going to say, I'm with you. I mean, it, it, it seems like it's beca- – I mean, look, Maiton did not have a very good debut, and he put on some weight this year. But I also think – I'm a little surprised in the prospect ranking industry how people seem to be backing off a guy who was compared to Miguel Sano and Miguel Cabrera very quickly. The, the guy was 17. Usually don't yeah. – you know, not everybody's Vladimir Guerrero Jr., uh, and uh, you know, I think it's a nice move by the Angels to get a guy who is so highly regarded. So I, I'm still I'm still on my con, and we'll look forward to your Angels rankings in the spring. The other two guys that have signed: Yefri Del Rosario with the Royals, 650k; Abraham Gutierrez with the Phillies, uh, 550,000. All right, quick thoughts on the winter meetings. Obviously, from your guys' standpoints, it's waiting for that big trade and and where some prospects might go. Uh, Jim, do you expect? Do you anticipate? Do you have a vibe that this is going to be a a busy winter meetings on the trades front? Uh, I don't know that I necessarily do. I mean, last year, I mean, I, I, I guess I would take, if we're, we're measuring vibe, I would take the under compared to last year where we pretty much knew that there was a chance that Chris Sale might go at the winter meetings, and then we had uh, Adam Eaton, the blockbuster, right after that. I mean, it, it seems like things are still kind of slow right now. We're, we're, we're still waiting to see where Shohei Otani signs. I mean, and we may get that news before the winter meetings begin. And, but it seems like until that happens, and then, you know, whether Giancarlo Stanton, you know, whether that gets finalized, the, the other moves are going to have to follow those. So I think until those two moves happen, it, it seems like we're, we're kind of in a holding pattern. Jonathan? Yeah, I think uh, lots of ways to see. The Stanton is, is the big thing, but uh, I, I feel that there have been too many winter meetings where we go in and we don't think anything's going to happen. Or like the first two days, everyone's complaining that nothing's happened, and then, bam, there are nine trades. So, um I don't know that it will measure up to last year because last year was really pure insanity. Uh, but I do think that, uh, that you know there's a chance that we're going to see some things that we haven't even contemplated yet. It's going to be a lot of fun. And next time we record this podcast, it will be from Orlando, Florida at the winter meetings. So uh, make sure you tune back in for that one. That'll do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 